Genesis 23. This time is special. There's not going to be another time this week like this time. No time can match this time. Because this is the only time this week that this body of Christ, the body that you have covenanted with, the body that you have been commanded to do life together with, this is going to be the only time that this body of Christ that you are a part of will meet together for the sole purpose for which it was created. And this time is special because of this. Because we are here to worship and glorify the creator of all life as told to us in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. We are here to worship this God through the gathering of his church, the fellowship of his body, loving one another. We are here to worship this God through the singing of songs that make much of him. We are here to worship this God through prayer and supplications made to him. We are here acknowledging our dependence on him, and the love that he has given to us, and the love that he has shed on us. And we are here to worship this God through the reading of his Bible, the reading of his word, and the preaching of his word. And we are here to worship this God through the taking of his covenant sign later. And in all of this, the word of God sits supreme over this time. It, it sits supreme over the life of the church because it is the rule and authority for the church and all that happens within it. And the reason for this is because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reason for this is that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And this God, this word, he gave us this word the Bible. And there is a reason for the Bible. And the reason that it was written to us, given to us, it was given to us for God. He is the hero of the Bible. He is the hero of all creation. And he is to be understood as the hero of our lives as well. And this hero, this author of the Bible, the Bible that was written for him, but to us, he uses one of his created tools to reveal himself to us in the Bible. Time. Time is at the center of the biblical narrative. It's a constant. A minute has always been 60 seconds. Always. It's a constant that we are all faced with. It's an outside force that reigns over us. We can't change it. We can't alter it. We can't slow it down and we can't speed it up. And it's time that God uses in the Bible as the means of directing our attention to him. If Genesis were a car trip, the first 11 chapters were like driving down the turnpike, doing 85 miles an hour. 11 chapters covering the beginning of all creation, all created things, covering the first thousand years of human life, the destruction of all life, save eight, all told in 11 chapters. 
But then, beginning in chapter 12, we get off the turnpike. We begin driving the back roads. And on those back roads, we're able to get a better glimpse of the scenery. We're able to get details better, get a better feel for the country that we're driving through, a better understanding of the lay of the land. And we're allowed to see in a more intimate manner the way that God deals with man. And it's these chapters, those that where humans are seemingly at the center of them, these are the ones that are all too often more interesting to us. Those chapters that have more human interactions. Chapters where God tells us about how he deals with humans. And we often get confused and begin looking at those humans, the ones that are in these accounts, as if they were the main characters in these accounts. And we do this for two reasons. Because there's two realities that we all have to deal with. And both are intimately intertwined. And both of these things are things that we never really want to think about, really even talk about, and very often not even admit. And both are realities that are dealt with from our text today. The first is that all humans are given the same gift by God. All humans. A gift that has great value. Time. We are all born under time, and we are all born dying. Each of us, at the moment of conception, is given an end on date. And this is why time has value. And even though this is true, we don't live as if it is true. We don't acknowledge this truth. And most people, they do all that they can do to push this truth from their minds. They not only deny this truth by their actions, but then they spend multiplied billions of dollars every year trying to cover up the effects of us dying. Plastic surgery, hair dye, hair club, and teeth upgrades. All in an effort to fool each other that we aren't dying. But as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. And because we all are born, are created with an end on date attached to our lives, time has value. We all understand time. We live and die by the clock. And the time of your birth is on your birth certificate, and the time of your death will be on your death certificate too. Time matters. It has value. And for this reason, it's how you spend your time that demonstrates what you value most. And the second thing is like the first. We are born under time and we are born under sin. It's in our DNA from the moment of conception. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this, like death, is evident very early on. And like death, we don't like thinking about it. We do our very level best not to think about it, never acknowledge it. We try to hide it, cover it up, disguise it. And we even will rename it. And the thing that we rename our sin the most is self. Self is always at the forefront of our minds. From the time that we start thinking, self is all that we care about. A baby 
never cries because you are hurt. They never cry because somebody else has died. They only cry when they desire and are not served. And the reality is, is that we never lose that sense of self. We have to be trained to think of others. We have to be taught to care about others. But ultimately, and this is reality, ultimately, all of our actions revolve around me. We really care about others because they have provided something for us. They do something for us. That's why we love them. And until the last 50 years in the life of man, people were taught to think of others primarily and then themselves secondarily. And this is how society has, thr has thrived. But beginning 50 years ago, especially in the West, self has become highlighted and even embraced. We now have participation trophies. Nobody wins, nobody loses. Self-awareness, self-image, self-wellness, self-help. We've all been taught, and please hear me on this, church. We have all been taught and are now being taught that how we feel about ourselves is important. And the result of this is that we no longer are selfish. We are now narcissists. And we've become so narcissistic in our culture that now just run-of-the-mill narcissists aren't even considered or called narcissists anymore. They're just labeled millennials or Gen Z. We've become so narcissistic that they have now actually come up with a clinical label for those that are especially good at being narcissist. It's now classified as a disease. And if you think about it, this is how all those selfish actions that become widespread are now classified as a disease. Alcoholism, all those addictions, all diseases now. And now those that are particularly good at thinking about themselves are labeled as having narcissistic personality disorder. And according to the Mayo Clinic, this is what you can expect from a person who has this disorder. They say it's a, men a mental condition, not a sin condition. It's a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, a lack of empathy for others, but behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. And the thing that ties all this in with Genesis 23 is that both Abraham and Sarah were just like us. They had to deal with the same two issues, time and sin. They lived their lives. How they lived their lives, they lived their lives demonstrating that they valued something outside of themselves. They somehow lived their lives for someone else. They overcame the sin of self. And they lived lives that were not primarily about them. They ultimately understood why they had value. That word value. We need to define it. Value is best defined as having regard for something. 
and, and, how, and how it's actually thought, the importance of it, the worth of it, the usefulness of it. And chapter 23 is all about value. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, Sarah has been tied in with Abraham. She's mentioned 14 times in the book of Genesis, including this time. And in all this time, we are never told much about her. We know that she was barren from her youth. We know that she and Abraham were married young. But for a person who has lived 127 years, we really don't know very much about her. But this isn't uncommon. In fact, we, re we know relatively little about any of the people that are mentioned in the Bible. And there's a reason for this. Because the Bible was not written to celebrate man. And the people that are chronicled within it are not given to us primarily in order to teach us or to learn, or to teach, I'm sorry, to learn, or for us to learn to emulate them. And all those self-help books, those that tell you how to learn to live like David, to be a Jabez, they all miss the thing that makes any person in the Bible important or worth emulating. And that we very often do think that this is why their lives are chronicled, in order that we can learn about them, in order that we can become like David, in order that we can become a godly woman like Sarah. Saints, this thinking is all tied in with that sin of self that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And it also demonstrates that we value wrong things, even in the Bible. Because the Bible was not written to make us better humans, or even to make much of man. It's not written to elevate the men and the women that are written about in it. But the Bible does use people, the lives of, of people, in conjunction with time as the means to demonstrate to us, to teach us, about the God that created us. To demonstrate to us the thing that in our lives has the most value. To teach us more about the God that has made us good and given us the ability to spend our time wisely, to act godly. And this God created us with an end on date. And Sarah was no different than any other human. Psalm 139 verse 16 tells us, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Saints, God created every single day of your life. And he appointed a certain exact number of them to you. And they, like all things, are his. They're from him to you. And to her, it was appointed 127 years. And do you realize that she is the only woman in all the Bible whose age is given to us at her death? And is given to us not to cause us to reflect on how old she was, but on the promises that God had made to her concerning her and the fulfilling of those promises. It had been over 37 years since she had conceived and bore Isaac. It had been over 50 years since God had promised an heir to Abraham. And it had been over 60 years since God had called Sarah and Abram to walk with him as strangers in a strange land. And you'd be thinking, 
God didn't call Abraham and Sarah. He just called Abraham. Sarah was like Lot. She just came along for the ride. But this isn't what the Bible indicates. The call on God of God was specific to her as well as Abraham. And we know this because of Hebrews 11.11, 11, which tells us, By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. God had given her faith. She didn't believe because Abraham did. That's not how faith works. It's given. It's of much greater value than just being passed on from human to human, handed down from father to son or from husband to wife. Faith works only from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that any may boast. And Sarah had faith in God. And as we were told in Genesis 21, 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And God had given faith. Sarah, faith. And this is what had value in her life. Her God. The one that she believed in. The one that she hoped against hope in. To fulfill the promise of that son. And the faith that God gave to her was demonstrated to us in the 127 years that she lived. And even in the place of her death. Verse 2. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. In the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. You're like, what? She remained in the promised land. She spent her most valued commodity, time, obeying the God that had purchased her and given her the faith to believe in him. She and Abraham, they could have viewed the providence of God in their lives, you know, that calls a go. They could have viewed that as a temporary thing. I mean, this really can't be where God desires us to live, to settle. Our family isn't here. There aren't many modern conveniences here. And they could have wasted that most valuable of commodities, time, second-guessing God instead of living by faith. And verse 2 isn't usual language in the Bible. We are not told of another patriarch up to this point who mourned for his wife. And he not only mourned for her, but he wept for her. Abraham valued his wife. He valued the relationship that they had between each other. They had been married for over 80 years. But more importantly, though, they had walked together with, with the Lord for most of their lives. And then the Lord took his beloved and he loved the gift that his wife had been. But as we will see in a bit, Abraham did understand 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where we're told that we are to mourn, but not as those that don't have hope. Verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This is new, guys. Something has changed in the life of Abraham. This is the first time that we are told of Abraham asking anything from the people who owned the land that he was a wanderer in. 
This is the first time that we hear of him asking them for property. And he's not going to them and expecting that they're actually going to give him anything. The giving that he's talking about is understand to meant to allow him to possess, allow me to buy. And despite the fact that he lived in their land for many years, despite the covenant that had been made between Abraham and Abimelech, he chose to obey God and live among them as a nomad and not move into one of their cities. He, in all the years of living in this land, never made a claim to any of it. He lived in this land. He was among these people, but he was never of these people, as attested to of verses 5 and 6. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. These people, they honored and they valued Abraham. Not for the man that he was, but for the man whose he was. They knew that he wasn't to be trusted, which was the reason for that covenant between Abimelech and Abraham. But they also understood that he was the prince of God that was dwelling among them. And they valued him because of whose he was. But ironically, though, even though they valued him because he was a prince of God, they didn't value the God that he was a prince of. Maybe they just figured that his God was one of their gods, just with a different name. So they said to him, Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They were willing to give him a tomb to bury his dead in. But Abraham wasn't interested in having anything given to him. And he had a specific plot in mind, as his verses in 7 through 9 show. And he was determined to purchase this land. And he specifically didn't want it having given to him. So Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give to me the land, at the, or give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in the presence as, and your presence as a property for a burying place. You know, coincidence happens just so happened that Ephron was sitting in the city gate that day. Just so happened. And his response is given to us in verses 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all who went into the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the people, of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, it's been surmised that what we're reading here is how bartering was accomplished in their day and age, that it was much more indirect than the bartering that we do now, that it, all this talk of giving really isn't meant in that sense, that Ephraim really never intended to give the land to Abraham, that it was just the, the polite manner to open negotiations. But I would counter that even if this was true, even if this is how negotiations were done in that day, I would counter that Abraham had a specific reason for desiring this place and that he purchased it and not have it given to him. Verses 12 and 13. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people, If you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. 
Abraham had his eye on that cave and that field, but he wasn't interested in getting it as a gift. So he told Ephraim, name your price. And Ephraim, verse 14, answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now, 400 shekels of silver wasn't a little amount of money. To get an idea how overinflated this piece of property was, years later, hundreds of years later, Jeremiah is commanded by the Lord to buy a field in Israel, and he pays 17 shekels of silver for it. Uh, Jeremiah 32. But as we're told in verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for him the silver that he had named, but in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. The land is bought. Sarah is entombed. And then the Lord ties this account up with verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field in Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. you realize that the place of this cave, that it was made over to Abraham, these things, both of these things are mentioned twice in these few verses. And the reason is, is that there's significance in them. See, because it would have been the custom in those days for Abraham to take Sarah home, to bury her with her ancestors. Abraham had the means to make that happen. But he specifically chose to have her entombed here. And he specifically desired that he purchase the property. That these people knew that this was his. He was staking a claim here. And what he was saying, this is home. And now we can talk about value and time. The value of anything is always determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. And this situation was no different. When Abraham showed up, wherever these Hittites were, they had to be aware that Sarah had died. And it became very obvious why he was there. He wanted a place to bury his dead, as he said to them in verse 4. And he had a specific spot in mind, as we're told. And even when an outrageous price is given for the land, Abraham didn't haggle over the price because the value of the land wasn't found in the amount of money that had to be spent to get it, but in what it would hold, and even what it promised. We are given another account of another man desiring to buy a plot of land a bit later in the Bible. And there too, the owner there offered to give it to that man. 2 Samuel 24, verses 22 through 24. Then Aaronu said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the lord your god accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, 
but I will buy it from you for a price, because I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And the price of this tomb, the negotiating skills of Abraham, these aren't the issues at hand. And this isn't the thing that we should be thinking through. What we should consider is this, is this is the only land that Abraham would ever buy from these Canaanites. And if he could buy this field for a burial spot, if the people of that land were willing to sell their land to a foreigner, why didn't Abraham purchase more land? I mean, he could have determined that since God had blessed him with lots of money, and we know that he did, the thing to do would be to use that money to buy as much of the land that God had showed him and told him was his. After all, God had told him, this is going to be yours. And he'd given him lots of disposable income, disposable cash. So it would have just made sense for Abraham to buy as much of that land as he could in order to be able to call it his own. But he wouldn't buy the land because the land wasn't his to buy. He could have bought the land. He had the money to do it. He had the resources to make this happen. But he didn't because God has specifically told him, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham wouldn't purchase land from these pagan people, not because he couldn't, and not because he didn't desire a home of his own. He wouldn't purchase it for the same reason that he told the king of Sodom. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 14. The land that he was promised, that he lived the rest of his life in, did have value. But owning this land, this wasn't the true value to Abraham. This wasn't what he was seeking. What he valued was much more significant than dirt. We know this because of Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He valued God, not the promises that were made to him. But why, why now would Abraham purchase land? Because Abraham valued God. And because Abraham knew God. He knew that he would and could raise people from the dead. We know that by Hebrews 11 again, 17 through 19, when we're told Abraham, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham knew that one day he would be reunited to Sarah in death and then in life again. And he purchased this plot in faith, knowing that he would be reunited with her one day. And he knew that if he had been given this land by the Canaanites, 
that that land could have been disputed. It could have been taken from him or his offspring later. But because he purchased this land, this tomb was his for all time. They could never dispute the place where he placed his wife, where he had buried his dead. It was a permanent memorial, but not to the dead or even for the dead, but to the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises. He was seeking a land and the fulfilling of a promise that God had made to him. And he spent his life, he spent the gift of his life in obedience to the one who had purchased him. And burying Sarah here proved that he valued what he valued most in life, that the thing that he valued most in life was God. Again, he could have taken Sarah back home to be buried with his family. What he did with one of his most valuable gifts that he would ever be given, what he did with with Sarah speaks volumes as to what he valued most in this world. If that whole time he had been living in the promised land with her, when she died, if he had been living that time longing for home, if his heart was there, if he didn't know in his heart that this was where the Lord had him, he would have never buried his wife here. He would have just decided, it's time to go home. My wife has died. I'm getting old. It's time to go back home. It's time to be with my people. He could have just figured that, hey man, I've done my God time. I I did that missionary thing. Now I'm old. Now it's me time. I'm going to retire and go play golf for a while. He could have taken the body of Sarah back home to be buried with the family. That family that he had been man, specifically told about at the end of last chapter. Man, hard word. Did you notice that, though, at the end of chapter 22? That, that chapter that is the main narrative of Abraham being tested about his son. At the end of that chapter, there's these verses that are just seemingly thrown in there. Verses 20 through 24. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazel, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel, and Bethuel his father Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Mekah. So before the death of Sarah, he gets word that his family back at home is flourishing. He could have just taken this as a sign that it's time to pack up and go back home. But he valued the Lord and the promises of the Lord, those promises that had not yet been fulfilled. Because just as much as God had promised a heritage to Abraham and had given him his son Isaac through Sarah, he had also promised this to this land to Abraham and his heritage. And Abraham hung on to the promise. Again, not because of the land, not that it had such great value, but because the promise maker did. And generations later, the grandson of Abraham, who like Abraham knew and loved the Lord, he also held to the fulfilling of the promise of God in giving this land to his children. 
in Egypt, Jacob gives his sons a solemn command. He said, bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim, the Hittite, the cave in the field of near Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephraim, the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Genesis 49, 29 through 32. Again, that field was a memorial to the God that these people all believed in. And none of them would ever live to see the day when the fulfilling of the promise made to Abraham happened. And yet every one of them spent their lives in faith to the one who had made this promise. Again, every person has been given the gift of time. It's the greatest common commodity that God gives to all people. You can make more money. You can earn respect. And you can buy happiness. But you can't alter time. You can't buy it. You can't sell it, and you can't prolong it. And how you spend it, time, how you spend your time reveals what you think of the one who gives you time. Saints, let's all face it. Every one of us, we're all consumed with self. We, we all believe, we are all confident of the fact that our life is about me. And we spend more time thinking about ourselves than any other thing. We think that our lives are all about us. And if you are outside of God, if you are like these Canaanites that can see value in Abraham because he was of God, but they didn't value the God that was the God of Abraham, if this is you, then spending your time on yourself Man, makes sense, because this is the best life you're ever going to have. But if the author of life has given you faith as he did Abraham and Sarah, if he has made you a child of Abraham, then how you spend your time, your most valuable asset, will be different. Again, listen to the author of Hebrews and speaking about people. People who were real people, they were just like you and me. They had all the same hopes and dreams. And they all have been given the same gift of time. But more importantly, these people have been given the gift of faith. And because of this, they understood why their lives were valuable. They understood how they spent their time was valuable. Again, Hebrews chapter 11. What more shall I say? For time would fail to t of me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And they all spent their lives in faith. They all acted in faith. But what is it? What do you suppose that made all of this possible in their lives? How were they able to do these things? What was the most valuable asset that is the common denominator in all of their lives? Faith? But not faith in faith. Because faith 
in faith has no value. There's a lot of people that have a lot of faith in the USA. There's a lot of people that have faith in the SBC. There's a lot of people that have faith in the NASDAQ. And if your faith is found in those things, they're going to fail you. And they have no eternal value. But these saints, they had faith in God. And God was the most important commodity that they had in their lives. And this is why, through faith, they put their time into action in the minute-by-minute decisions that they made. And it's easy. It's easy to walk in faith when the sun is out. It's easy to say that I'm walking in faith when all things are going your way, when you get the girl, when you land that account, when you win the tournament. Faith is easy then. But what about when things get hard? Like the death of your beloved. How about then? Well, then is when your faith is proven. And it will be proven to either be faith in faith or faith in God. It's what you have faith in that makes that faith valuable. As the author of Hebrews tells us, listen to verses 35 and 36. When talking about these people who had faith, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment. And let me stop there for a second. And let's just think about what I just read. These people, again, real people, just like you and me, put yourself in their position. They could have lived. They could have not been tortured. Here's the option. Torture, not torture. They had a choice to make. And while they were incarcerated, this is what he's saying here. While they were incarcerated, they could have been released. They could have been not tortured. All they had to do was deny the master who had bought them. Deny the God that had saved them. To compromise on the faith that they had been given. All they had to do was to turn Judas. But instead, they valued something much more than their lives. The time that they had been given here. And the comfort and the ease of this world was secondary to the God that gave them that time. They chose to spend their lives, the time that had been allotted to them and the resources that were at their disposal on the thing that mattered the most to them. Not their ministry, not their life, their God. And they traded all that they had, all that they were for the God that had saved them. Listen to verses 37 and 38 of Hebrews 11. They were stoned. Again, these people had the choice. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And again, think of yourself in their context. Are you willing now to put yourself in this position To lose your house, to lose your job, to lose everything that you have 
for the God that saved you. If you're standing in that position and you're given the choice, deny the Lord or this happens. They went about wandering in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and the earth. And again, this, get, this lifts like the chapter that we're reading in, in Genesis. They're not given to highlight these people. And really, it isn't even to highlight their faith either. The author of Hebrews, he ends the hall of faith by listing the people that he had given there. And he ends it with this. All these, though commended through their faith, commended through their faith, not for their faith, through their faith, they didn't receive what was promised, since God is something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What in the world is he talking about? What is it that he's saying that was provided, that has been given to us, that was better than faith that was given to them? How are we and they made perfect? Lucky for us, he tells us in verses 1 and 2 of the next chapter. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and again, he's summarizing all those people highlighted in chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's telling us to spend our time wisely. And this is how we do it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author says that we should spend our time, that greatest of assets that God has given to us, on God. And he, God, he is what makes this time, again, why this time is special. He is what makes this gathering, this time, so special. Because this gathering is the physical representation of God on earth. And this is why, he is why we should invest our lives into these people. Why the church should be held in such high regard. Because the body, this body is the body of Christ, as told to us in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God, again, as it is, this is not human. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If we're all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Saints, do you feel yourself being a weak member of your, this church? I'm just, I don't have any value here. God says you're indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God, again, this is God. This is not Paul. This is not man. God has so composed the body, and he's speaking of the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there are many that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And this account from today is given to cause us to think through the frailty of life. It's given us to cause us to deal with with the reality of death, and given us to cause us to ask ourselves, what is the meaning of my life? Saints, what is the value of your life? Your car? Your house? Your occupation? Is it you? Or is it Christ living in you? And you will know what you value the most in this life by where you are investing the most precious commodity that God has ever given to you outside of faith. Time. How important is the body of Christ that you have become a member of? How much value do you place in it? Do you, do you find it easier to find reasons to not gather with it than you do to gather? Do you look forward to the weekend? And that weekend means Saturday. And Saturday, I overdo it on Saturday. I throw in as much as I possibly can and I stay up really late and then I show up on Sunday morning walking in exhausted limping in here to gather with your body? Do you view this time as important or not? Do you make up your mind on what makes this time valuable based on the quality of music that is played, based on the length of the sermon preached, or even the people that are doing the music why is she wearing that funny uniform? I don't understand. <laughs> or based on the person that is preaching the sermon, do you willingly choose to not gather to be with the body on Sunday in order that you can rest up and be prepared for Monday? Is this, this, the value that you place on the God that has saved you and has given you the faith to believe? Saints, every one of us are going to find ourselves in the same place as Abraham and Sarah in our life. Every one of us. Dying and burying our dead. That end on date will happen but it's what you spend your time on now. How 
and what you value your worth to be and what you place your greatest value in that matters the most, that will be the heritage that will follow you. How do you see the promises that God made to you? Are you willing to spend your time like Abraham and Sarah did? Are you willing to live your life outside of faith and just be practical about how you're going to live? Or can you see that the promised maker is of the greatest value? And if so, if that is you, then you will find yourself like Abraham and Sarah, staying, committing to his body, committing to Christ. Saints, again, we're all going to die. The reality that, that Abraham and Sarah are dealing with here, dying and burying, we have all had to do this. We all are going to do this. But what heritage are you living? What value, the thing that you spend your time on from this moment to that, matters. And if God matters, then ask him, Beg him, pray to him to give you the heart to desire him, to love his word, to be a man of, or woman of prayer, to love his body, to cherish the gift that he has given you. That's the only way that Abraham and Sarah stayed in the promised land. We aren't given this account we are not given this account to worship these men or this woman. We are given this account to think much of the God that for 127 years never failed Sarah. He's not going to fail you either. Let's pray.